The University of Texas at Austin is filled with incredible people who do amazing things for our community. Make Me Love What You Do is a chance to hear some of their funny, moving, and surprising stories. Wouldn't it be great if there was someone who could help you work through a disagreement you're having with a coworker, or figure out how your team can communicate with each other better, or find some resolution to a difficult or painful experience you had with your boss? Well, there is. You're about to meet Deborah Sharp, UT's dispute resolution officer, and she has an inspiring and exciting vision for our community. Deborah? Make me love what you do. So I thought that I'd start just by asking a little bit more about you. Um, just tell me where, like, where you're from, how you grew up. Until I lived in Madrid, Spain, until I was four. I was born in the United States, but we went almost immediately to Madrid. And so I lived there until I was four. My father was in the Air Force. And so he came back to upstate New York and no one there spoke Spanish. <laughs> so I had, as a young child, I had sort of an immigrant experience, even though I was born in the United States. Interesting. And then he was transferred to the Pentagon. And so I grew up in Northern Virginia and moved to Texas when I was in high school. What was your dad or your parents doing in Madrid? There's an Air Force base there. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he was stationed there. Okay, interesting. So then what drove you or attracted you about social work? Because that sort of it was Yeah, your social work first. is my discipline. Right. Yeah. My first education was in nursing. And I worked as a midwife for a while. But I am not a nurse. I am a social worker. Like, it, it's not that just that I've been trained, but um, social justice is really important to me and has been since I was a child. So that's part of what attracted me to social work is that the values of the profession really match who I am. They match my own values. But also, I had an experience. My second daughter died of cancer. And I had an experience of social workers that supported my family through that process. And it changed our lives. They made all the difference. And so I came to understand the difference that social workers can make. And I, I, wanted, to, that, I wanted that to be me. I wanted to make a difference. That's interesting. You, you hear these kinds of stories often of that have to do with healthcare or, or wellness where people have gone through that experience of often themselves being a patient. Mm -hmm. And it's often uh, were children who are cared for by a doctor or a nurse. And they think that I want to do that sort of thing. That's yeah, it, it was a experience. similar experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How does social justice appear or manifest itself for a child. It's interesting to me that you say that social justice has been important to you since you were a child, but what does that look like from a child's perspective? Oh, yeah. Well, I saw it more actively in the child life department and the hospital, but the way it manifests for a child is around choice and difference. 
often with children in a lot of situations, with adults too, but with children, they don't have very much choice. But agency, uh, the ability to make a choice, um, you know this in leadership, right? That uh, having agency is so important. Uh, It's important in the way we feel about ourselves. It's important in the way we feel about our circumstances. Uh, That when we have an element of choice, uh, it's powerful and we feel powerful. And so when you talk about justice, right? When you talk about equity or equality or evening the playing field, you know, when you talk about any of those things, you're talking about empowerment, about agency, and ultimately about choice. That's fascinating. Talk to me a little bit about the evolution of your career. Um, <laughs> I have known you before you're, you're in your current role, mm-hmm. but I don't know much about what you were doing before that point. You know, you don't have to get too far into the weeds if you don't want to, but talk to me about how you got to where you are. Sure. Well, out of my experience of my daughter's illness, I um, went to work as the executive director for Candlelighter's Childhood Cancer Foundation in the Austin area. Through that experience, we developed a lot of groups. And uh, again, I saw the power of people to help each other. Uh, to help each other to grow and to support each other through difficult circumstances. I actually left that position and went back to get my master's in social work. And then uh, went into private practice for a period of time. And then uh, went to work at the, thanks to Susan Harnden, uh, went to work at the Employee Assistance Program here at UT, where I worked for 10 years and got to have the opportunity to see people from all kinds of different positions and different circumstances um, uh, and to understand what things were like from their viewpoint and often from various viewpoints, right? And so the, and I maintained my private practice. And so the combination of my private practice and my experience in the university system and with university employees, they informed each other uh, about how to help people solve problems and how to help people solve problems in systems. And specifically in this university system, right? <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Right. Well, that you talked about how uh, different people and different viewpoints, and I think it was probably interesting for you is it could be the same issue, the same subject, the same problem, but different viewpoints of different people. Yes, there's a, I don't know if you're familiar with the film Rashomon. Have you ever mm-hmm. heard of that, that film, yeah, sure. which, um, and the Rashomon effect, right, of coming uh, to the same problem or situation or circumstance from a lot of different perspectives. And it depends on your point of view, what the, the issue is, which really informs my work now. Right, because there isn't necessarily uh, a right or wrong. There's just a variety of viewpoints. 
um, and uh, underlying needs. You know, one of the things that I sometimes felt frustrated with in my work at the Employee Assistance Program, and actually what appealed to me about this position, is that um, when you're working with an individual, you can help them to cope and to strategize, right? Um, help them to feel better and to, to make decisions about how they want to go forward. But you, you were only working with one person often, uh, the majority of the time, right? And in this position, I, I get to have a larger perspective, right? And, and you can imagine from what I've already said why that's appealing to me, but um, I get to understand a problem or a circumstance from a variety of different points of view, at least two, at least two. Right. Well, so let's talk about that. Let, let's uh, tell us just at least superficially what your role is, what you're supposed to do, not necessarily, let's not get into how <laughs> you do What's my job it. description, yeah, right? What's, yeah, what's your, what, what do they hire you for? Yeah, well, of course, I'm the dispute resolutions officer, and so I manage the formal grievance process for the university, but that's such a, a tiny part of what I, I do day to day, week to week, you know. The majority of what I do is to help people solve problems in the workplace, and sometimes those are interpersonal problems uh, that we address through facility, sometimes through communication coaching or through facilitated conversation or sometimes through a formal mediation. And uh, sometimes those are, are more, um, oh, it might be more of a departmental issue. So increasingly we address those sorts or can, uh, it's an option, right? To address those sorts of concerns using a pro some sort of restorative practice restorative justice circle um, with the goal of community building or a restorative justice circle. There's three tiers. There's community building, there's addressing harm, and there's re-entry. I know that, that re-entry is on everyone's mind right now uh, as we consider what's going to be happening in the fall of 2021. So restorative justice circles, I sometimes co-facilitate with Kwong Chan, who's the staff student ombuds. And those can be really helpful in providing an opportunity for people to voice what is true for them and to be heard uh, in a structured way that addresses issues, not personalities, right? So it can really be useful in helping people to come together and understand the way they um, have the same vision or to co-create a vision. I'd like to hear more about the different approach that you are already taking with dispute resolution. I think that when people hear or think about dispute resolution, they think about it in terms of there's already a, a really big problem. It's sort of a last resort. Your approach is quite different. Well, I would much rather see people way upstream of that point. Different people uh, clearly have been in this position. The person before me was uh, an attorney 
And the person before that was a human resource professional. I think our various disciplines also inform our approach to problems. And I like to intervene at various different levels. Probably you already got that impression from what I was saying. But one of the things that I think is important is there are a lot of departments on campus that work on preventing problems, preventing conflict. There's a lot of departments. In my department, what we do for prevention is I offer an eight-week series called Effective Communication and Conflict, because what I've found is people are so afraid of conflict. And some people are comfortable with it, but very few. Sometimes people avoid addressing a problem because they're afraid of conflict or they have some belief about what will happen. And so by giving people tools to understand themselves and just guidelines to fall back on, right? The eight-week series is a combination of didactic, so I do a little bit of teaching about a skill or a concept. And then we also have exercises and group discussions where we can learn from each other. So people, again, from a wide variety of departments and positions across campus, talk about what things are like from their experience. And because they aren't actually coworkers, we don't include people from the same department in the same series, they can learn from each other. Like, oh, that's what's going on, right? And they can practice their skills. They can practice listening and assertive communication. They can understand what their theirs and other people's reaction patterns are and learn how to be better at addressing conflict. Yeah. One of the most common weaknesses in leadership is that uh, fear of conflict or conflict avoidance, which is interesting, but it can really make for a powerful leader who knows how to deal with conflict. When you're talking about the fear of conflict, I think another problem that you probably see, and I certainly see, are people who don't have a fear of conflict uh, interacting with people who do have a fear of conflict <laughs> because in their, they have no problem with it. And so they're very uh, comfortable in that area. And they don't, almost don't understand why somebody is reacting in a, such an adverse or emotional way uh, when there is conflict. Well, there's also a, a cultural component that someone reminded me of recently in our um, ECC series, the Effective Communication and Conflict series that some individuals and also some cultures are more demonstrative, right? May talk more, may talk longer, may talk louder, may gesticulate more, right? And that can be misinterpreted. That's also an important, the idea that some people are more comfortable with conflict. They have more experience with it. Uh, they understand that conflict can be used as a tool to gain better understanding, to become closer, to improve the working relationship. Uh, they understand that already. But like you say, when they're interacting with someone who does not know that or believe that and is frightened by the idea or uh, becomes anxious uh, or uncertain about what's happening, how should I interpret this behavior, you know, yeah. then problems emerge. <laughs> right. The, the, the person uh, who doesn't have is comfortable in conflict might be oblivious to the other person's perspective that this is wrong and there is a, a real problem here where 
uh, just again, as, as you say, different perspectives on the same issue. So let's talk about uh, restorative justice. This is uh, one big way uh, that you have a different approach um, than maybe traditional DROs, and you're even thinking about changing the name, right? You know, when you lead with the word conflict, so I'm currently the conflict management and dispute resolutions office. Um, when you leave with the word conflict, uh, like we have trouble getting interns because they don't want to deal with conflict, <laughs> right? And also you want to lead with what you want, not what you don't want. And so I like the idea of changing the name of our office to the Office for Peace Building and Dispute Resolution. We need to keep the dispute resolution. And there I am with the DRO, as it turns out. Right. But what we're trying to do is build peace and better understanding with each other. Peace building is kind of a not kind of it is a term that is utilized a lot in the alternative dispute resolution world and also in the restorative practices world. So, okay, so what is restorative justice? (laughs) How long do we have? There, there, <laughs> what what I, length of answer do you want to that question? Let, let's let's start with um, a a layman's definition. Rather than starting with answering what is restorative justice, I think I'd like to start with what are restorative principles, because we can and do operate from restorative principles, whether we are holding a restorative justice circle or not. Right. And so the principles are that individuals are in community with each other and that the community has both responsibility, but that it's circular, I guess. Right. That they inform and feed each other. Individuals uh, contribute to community and community contributes to individuals. And so um, in social work, we call this the person in environment perspective, that people don't exist in a vacuum. And in American culture, we often focus on the individual and we sometimes focus on who has broken what rule and how should they be punished for it. Restorative principles uh, focus on relationships and focus on community. And so the question is, how can the community be healed? Which is such a better question, right? So many of us through the pandemic have experienced isolation and uh, the belief or the reality that we're alone. But we are social creatures. We have to exist in community uh, and in relationship with each other. And so restorative principles come from that perspective Um, and and also come from the idea that people want to be heard and understood. I first heard of restorative justice in the legal world, and it was very interesting. And I I love the concept of it. I also had this inclination to feel like maybe this is a little too naive in some ways, because there are some really egregious and violent, awful things that happen to people. And maybe restorative justice doesn't have the solution for those sorts of things. 
what would you say to a skeptic uh, who sort of feels that way that, well, you know, somebody who is, you know, mugged out on a street, you know, wants to see justice, wants to see punitive justice. So what would you say to that? Well, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Like, I, I don't think that our traditional criminal justice system and restorative practice have to be mutually exclusive. But again, I would want to shift the lens. I was reading uh, recently reading Marilyn Armour's book on restorative justice dialogue. Uh, Marilyn is of our own Steve Hicks School of Social Work. Hmm. You know, restorative justice emerges from Native American and Aboriginal peoples' practices all over the world. But Marilyn pointed out that it also emerges in the 16th century when William the Conqueror's son, Henry I. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That that was actually the shift away from a community healing sort of justice system. For instance, you use the example of someone being mugged, right? So that's a frightening experience and often something is taken from you. So it can feel like a violation on a number of different levels, not just a material level, but also a violation of person and an emotional experience, right? And so the criminal justice system, the idea of punishment that you just described, doesn't address the victim's experience in any way right? Other than this concept of someone's being punished, but they're not involved in that process. And it doesn't do anything to heal, you know, it may or may not give them their stuff back, <laughs> right? But even if you get the stuff back, like that's not solving, that doesn't actually address the harm, right? And so what Henry I did is he made infractions, somebody getting mugged, right? a crime against the state rather than a crime against person. And he did that because taxes were unpopular. It gave him a way to, oh, to generate revenue, I right? See. Wow. And that's such a, an illustration of the way that policies and macro issues can have such incredible lasting impact on individuals. Right. Right. Sort so, of contrived, like backing into a solution that doesn't work for practical reasons. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. And so what's important when I have experienced harm and, you know, if you bring to mind any circumstance, criminal or otherwise, where you have experienced harm, I want to be understood in my experience. If you have harmed me, I want you to understand what impact your behavior has had on me. I want you to know that, to feel it, right? And as a community, I like to use the example, if you steal $100 from me, right? Well, there's every, every impact that that has on me as a person and perhaps my family, right? And those closest to me. But there's also some reason why you are stealing $100. The community has some responsibility for that fact also, 
right? And I don't know if we can blame it on Henry the First. Let's, you know, <laughs> but yeah, let's blame it on on that guy. But there is is some additional factor that's at play. So those two things, keeping in mind, how did we come to be in this circumstance? And what do we need in order to heal, in order for the person who has experienced harm to heal and those closest to them, and the person who has has been the perpetrator of harm to heal, to return to community, right? And their family and those closest to them. I I think um, also the understanding of uh, why it's wrong. So in traditional sort of punitive justice, stealing $100, whatever the punishment might be, the the link isn't direct in understanding why it's wrong or Yeah, you broke a law. Right. Yeah. And and so okay, yeah. it's just, you know, I, I I did something wrong and I'm punished for it. But with restorative justice, there is at least an attempt to try and create that connection of understanding for the person who violated uh, or committed that wrong. I think that's an important thing for maybe skeptics about RJ to understand that there is a a real practical um, part of this. It it isn't kind of this feel good mumbo jumbo like it uh, it, it has (laughs) and results, right? First, we name harms, right? Then we identify needs. The, either the underlying need or the created need from the circumstance. And then we sense obligations. So based on the, the needs, that the harm that has been done and the needs that have been identified, who feels responsibility or obligation in this circumstance? And what does that look like? What, how do we operationalize that sense of responsibility or obligation in a way that restores community. Yeah. Right. It's, it it's is really, beautiful. it really. is beautiful. <laughs> and it's, it's also really exciting um, because I, I feel that it could really change um, not just individuals, you know, in their perspective, but it really has potential to change a, a whole culture. And so it, you know, Looking at UT as sort of this microcosm or this, you know, not so small community, there is a a real potential to um, change a perspective on how we look at wrongs and how we address behavior or misbehavior. Um, That's pretty exciting. How we address harm. Right. Right. In a way that recognizes humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about your perspective on the people of the University of Texas. I think that you (laughs) must have a very interesting outlook and perspective um, because while some people interact with their own team and they therefore have their own impression of um, what the people of UT look like or how they behave. Um, you have a very, you have at least opportunity to view the people that make UT what it is in a pretty special way. 
I hadn't thought of it, but it's true. I get to see an interesting cross-section of the university and a repetitive, you know, and then a different cross-section and then a different and then a different. Yeah. Because you don't serve just staff. You also work with faculty and you don't work just for the academic side. You also, you know, talk to folks in facilities or, you know, so you see a, a real range of the kind of people who make up UT. I do. We do uh, I don't serve students. Sometimes student employees, though. Is that right? In some circumstances, yeah. And in circumstances, I don't actually primarily serve faculty either. But in a lot of departments, staff report to faculty. Right. Or certainly support faculty in a variety of different ways and support students in a variety of different ways. And so there, there may be situations where my mission is to serve staff. But I, I also serve people in other capacities. Right. And as you say, in different departments, academic departments, um, you know, and each department has its own culture and its own philosophy of operation. Um, we were talking about earlier the way different disciplines will form your thinking in a particular way. And that's true. That's true across campus, that the setting and culture of engineering is different than the setting and culture at McCombs, for instance. I mean, just choosing two departments at random. Right. Yeah. And also, if your service to the university involves, if you are a direct contributor, if you are performing work or tasks, I'm thinking of the tradespeople who are part of our campus uh, who keep the the lights on and the water running and <laughs> the buildings functional, you know, the landscaping beautiful. Yeah. It requires so many people to for that to be true. The fact that our buildings are clean and accessible and function well, you know, we take that for granted a lot of times. But direct contributors are the ones that make that possible. What starts here changes the world, and there are some very high-profile individuals on our campus. And they could not do the wonderful work that they do if direct contributors were not keeping the whole thing going. Speaking again from my value of community and wholeness, it, it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to see everything that the university is. It's really a remarkable place. I mean, I bleed burn orange and I love this campus and I love the people on it. And I love our diversity. It's really remarkable and remarkable that we can all be in service of a larger good. Right. But yet we have, you know, these these focuses uh, of, you know, education and research um, and we get there in so many different ways, you know, from mowing lawns to um, serving people at uh, housing and dining and uh, every one of it is so important, but there's so many different facets and moving parts in, in how we get to that mission. It's complicated. Yeah. And the arborists, you know, there are people oh, yeah. that maintain the trees on yeah. campus. Yeah. <laughs> I really value the trees. So it's beautiful. Yeah. 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 But that's not to say that there's not, I mean, in any organization of this size and any of its individual components, of course, problems 
arise, and everyone is not joining hands and singing all the time. There are real problems that individuals experience and that departments experience, you know, problems that occur between individuals and, and occur in departments. Um, and that uh, subsets of our population experience all the time. And so I can simultaneously be devoted and inspired by the university and be very aware of the problems that are present, both interpersonally and the impact of policies on individuals. That's a, a really important thing, I, I think, to for a lot of people to be aware of. You know, we hear about it often in terms of, you know, patriotism or love of country. And um, it, it's not unpatriotic to find fault in your government or find ways that we can be better. And it's the same is true for a place that you work. You know, um, problems happen and and it's important to point them out and find resolution for them too. Yeah. <laughs> so talk to me about how, um, uh, how your work comes to you um, and maybe in the context of uh, how people can um, work with you. Sure. Well, it starts out with a consultation. And so anyone on campus can schedule a consultation with my office through email at cmdr at austin.utexas.edu. And in that initial consultation, um, I'll hear from you about what kind of problems you're experiencing, or maybe sometimes what kind of problems you're trying to prevent. Mm -hmm. And based on that consultation, we can go in a variety of directions. Often that consultation comes from the employee, but sometimes it comes from a manager or a director who is aware of problems in their department or with their employees. But often it comes, uh, for instance, at performance evaluation time is some time that, that we have a lot of demand. Also, sometimes people experience corrective action, and corrective action is the tool that managers have available to them to improve employees' performance, right? And to bring it more in line with expectations. The, well, the grievance process, the formal grievance process, but these alternative dispute resolution processes, my office, right, is a tool that employees can use when they don't feel like a performance evaluation is accurate or fair, or where they don't feel like corrective action is accurate or fair, I can help amplify the employee's voice in circumstances like that. So you you solve problems. Um, I, well, I try to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you try to. You're, you help solve them. Uh, and you're not, uh, uh, they're not problems like, you know, fixing a widget or <laughs> finding a, uh, you know, a mechanical fix, what kind of problems are people coming to you as you talk about performance? Sure. Well, primarily it's around communication. You know, if I had to pick one thing, it would be communication. People are having trouble communicating or they're misunderstanding each other or they're missing each other completely. And uh, those problems accumulate over time 
and and can become yes yeah and so again we're got you know i'd love to intervene upstream of when they have been hardened or calcified into you know particular interaction patterns over time but even even then uh we we can make progress we can help uh people through facilitated conversation or mediation to hear each other to understand each other better and to come to some understanding of the underlying needs often people come in with a position right like i want this thing and this thing is often a strategy their preferred strategy to meet a need so okay maybe they'll get that thing i don't know sometimes sometimes you get that thing um but sometimes you don't get that thing but you can still if we can get down to the level of needs we can still solve the problem you can still have your need met right and at the very least understood <laughs> that you have that need right and that's on both sides of the equation like uh we all have needs you know common needs in the workplace are safety both physical and emotional safety security so you want to keep your job but you also want to have a career arc that you want to understand how you can progress in your position sometimes it's not important to everyone but it's very important to many people harmony challenge uh you know if you can imagine a situation where one person uh values harmony more than anything else and another person values challenge more than anything else then that's going to not fit very well mm-hmm. you touched on some of these core principles of mediation and negotiation of you know positions uh, trying to take people out of their positions maybe we can talk a little bit more about that i think that one of the things that i have found that is so detrimental to effective communication is this cultural way that we approach adverse situations by position and as a zero sum game right in order to get this i have to take this away from this other person that means i've i've won like it's pie if you get more i get less yeah exactly so let's talk about how that's an important cultural thing that as a whole we need to try and evolve from oh that's so true <laughs> as a culture that we need to evolve from you know one of the things that i um notice and sometimes utilize is that uh so again talk you know people come in with a position i want to win i want to get my that thing right if we can shift to the underlying needs then we can be open to a variety of different options uh to meet that need and then bringing in values i i i talked about values a minute ago but in in unit work units or in departments or in colleges or in the university as a whole we we have values and they guide our under the best of circumstances they guide our work right but we can lose track of those values because we get really tied into i want that thing right and we lose connection with the whole or the larger vision or mission of like why are we the why like why are we doing this thing you know there there's some reason and so often when two people are in conflict they're still guided by the same values or they're in service of the same mission 
And when we can remember that or get in touch with that or maybe discover it for the first time, that there is actually some, I'm in service of a larger mission of something beyond myself, or I'm in service, or, you know, we might disagree on that thing a lot, but we do agree on these values, right? So bringing in context, bringing in community, bringing in values, bringing in mission can be really helpful in solving conflict between people. Sort of clears the things that are getting in the way of them seeing what they really need uh, or what they're sometimes, really supposed to, yeah. Sometimes it, it can chip away at the calcification. Right, right. Loosen it up a little bit. There's one thing that we definitely have in common among other things, but is that proactive approach of let's try and do whatever we can to avoid getting to the point where we're chipping away at the calcification. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Let's yes. let's teach people how to communicate first and hopefully do whatever we can to put ourselves out of business the other end, right? <laughs> Which would probably never happen, but it's just sort of like a, a vision anyways. Like the, you, you don't necessarily, it's aspirational. Like it's what we should be shooting for. We may probably never get there, but we should, you know, try and get there. And that's, I think, um, is uh, in a lot of ways, it's a new perspective for the way that work gets done rather than being reactive, being proactive and getting ahead of these issues and providing people with the tools and resources and and know-how to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. To be healthy. Right. Talk to me about what a great day looks like for you you can if if you have a a day where you thought that was the best day of my career we can talk about that too but generally what is a a really great day look like for you the part that keeps me going is that moment where people shift a little bit you know that moment where they begin to understand oh (laughs) oh That's what's going on with that other person, right? Or the counterpart to that experience where, oh, I finally feel understood. I finally got to say that thing, mm-hmm. right? I think that you've, I, I've heard you that's, say before. That's really motivating. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And I think I've heard you say before that you can literally see it happening or feel it happening. Or feel right? it, yeah. 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 I don't know how to describe it, but I, I think, well, I think everyone can, you know, if I ask you to bring to your mind a situation that felt tense or awkward, right? Or where you believed someone was angry at you or where you were angry at someone else. Everyone can bring that kind of circumstance to mind and you know what that feels like, right? And then if you let that go, because who wants to feel that? Right. But if you um, now imagine a time and, and they're, you know, they're, they're rare in our lives where we completely feel understood, where someone really sees us or hears us, where we feel like we're resonating emotionally with someone and how good that feels. It just it, it's life giving. Right. And so. You can tell the difference between the way those two things feel. 
And so there's a tipping point. There's a point where it's like, oh, it's more this way than that way, you know? Right. That's exciting. I mean, that, and that can, it is healing, right? It is. It's, yeah. it's life-giving. Yeah. How wonderful. Well, is there, are there anything else that you want to make sure people uh, know about either you or the work that you do or the university as a whole? I do want people to understand how to access my office. I said that earlier. I'm going to say it again now by email at cmdr at austin.utexas.edu. And I want to encourage people, just come consult. Let's just have a conversation. Let me know what you're experiencing and what you're thinking about, what you're worried about. I might be able to help. Or I might be able to refer them to your office or to the organizational effectiveness office. I might help them put together a plan that involves other entities or offices or organizations on campus. I think people learn about us in NUO, right? New employees, they learn about us and immediately forget it because they don't need it right then. Right. I think sometimes we're a closely guarded secret that we're here until someone gets a corrective action letter and it's printed at the bottom of the letter that you can contact my office, right? And I'm happy to serve you in that circumstance. I'm happy to do that. But I'd love to help before that. So that's something. And take the class, right? Oh, yes. Effective Communication and Conflict. We offer two series. It's an eight-week series, hour and a half per. And they're offered two sections each semester. So spring, summer, and fall. Our summer session is already running. We may try and fit in four because we've had such high demand. We have a lot of enthusiasm for this group. So we may, may try to fit in four this year. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for your time and talking with me. I always enjoy talking to you. We're kindred spirits. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, I appreciate your time and attention. This has been lovely. You know, uh, I've been talking about how good it feels to be seen and heard and it felt good to be seen and heard. So <laughs> okay. thank you. <laughs> good, good. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Make Me Love What You Do is a podcast made possible by a partnership between UT's Learning and Development Office and LAITS Development Studio. If you like what you hear, remember to subscribe for new episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to share with friends, coworkers, and family so they can hear about the great things we do at the University of Texas. Thank you.